Good evening. Uh, your permission, we're going to start and start uh, mercifully on time. Uh, before I, my name is Abbas Milani. I direct the Iranian Studies Program here. And uh, uh, before I introduce our esteemed uh, uh, guest tonight, I want to make a couple of uh, announcements. Uh, if you have seen uh, this sheet, this has. Uh, uh, one of our remaining uh, events that happens on June 11th, Shahriyar Mandanipur, a great uh, a writer, uh, uh, fiction writer, uh, and literary critic, uh, will be talking, will be reading some of his uh, recent works. Uh, the event will be in English. We have two other events that are not on this page, and I would like to announce it now. The two events are tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. This is a rather busy week for Iranian studies. Uh, tomorrow, uh, uh, we have uh, uh, a talk uh, by uh, Mr. Amjad, uh, who is a prominent Iranian playwright, a historian of the theater, uh, and critic. Uh, I've been reading some of his work. It's truly a remarkably rich uh, number of uh, both critical writings as well as plays. He will be talking about modernity and the theater in Iran. Uh, it is uh, tomorrow at 6.30 at Annenberg Auditorium in the Art Building. The day after tomorrow, uh, Saturday at 6.30, uh, the, Dar uh, the Darvak group will be performing one of Mr. Amjad's play called Negin. Both of these events are in Persian. And Mr. Amjad, as well as Mr. Ehya, who has directed the play, will be there to answer questions after the performance. The performance is one hour. It again is at Annenberg. And it is at 6.30 on Saturday. So tomorrow, uh, modernity and Persian theater. Saturday, uh, one of these Persian theaters called uh, Neki. Uh, it is uh, my pleasure to introduce to you uh, uh, our guest tonight, easily one of the most accomplished Iranian journalist working in the West. Uh, she has a long uh, acclaimed career that began in 1992 in New York Times uh, and ended in 2009 uh, when she was virtually forced out of Iran uh, because she dared speak the truth, I think. I think the Iranian regime, if you read her memoir, which is truly a wonderfully wrought uh, account of her life, of her journey as a journalist, and of the Iranian society as it is going through these travails, the 1979 revolution and the 2009 revolution. We have copies of the book available. She has agreed to kindly sign them if you get a copy. There are not uh, too many copies. Uh, so uh, I strongly recommend it. It is truly engrossing and informative and informed. And it tells you, if you read it, why she was essentially forced out of Iran. The regime, I think, if you read the memoir, made three mistakes about her. They thought that because she's a woman, they can push her around. They were wrong. They thought that because she's an Iranian woman, journalist, they can push her around and intimidate her. They were wrong. And they thought that because she has one of the plumbest jobs in journalism, a New York Times correspondent in Tehran writing about Iran, they would use a combination of inducements and threats 
to force her to pull her punches, as many journalists who write from Iran do. In order to keep that plump job, I understand it, but some decide not to do that, and she is one of those people. And I think uh, everyone owes her a great deal uh, because in her writing, she not only spoke the truth, but she also began covering Iran in a way that was very different than just writing about the nuclear issue or writing about uh, the politics at the center of power. She began to, writing about, uh, to write about cultural events. She gave essentially the world the first window into the subaltern cultural life that has been thriving in Iran. We know of Naum Ju to no small measure because of her reporting. So it gives me great pleasure and uh, personal uh, delight and honor to introduce to you our esteemed guest tonight, Ms. Nazila Fatih. Dr. Milani, thank you so much. That was a very kind introduction. I don't know if I deserve it. It's my personal delight to be here. Um, and thank you very much for everything you have done, not only for Iranians, but also for Iranian studies. And uh, for the way a lot of Iranians have come to you and you have provided refuge for them. So a lot of us are grateful to you. Um, thank you so much for coming here. I don't want to tell you about the stories that are already in the book and you, you can read them. I want to tell you about why I wrote the book, uh, what led me to write um, uh, the, the stories that I think are important about Iran, uh, stories that are not just about my life. I have tried to pick stories uh, that uh, were part of the experience of a larger group of Iranians, those Iranians who stayed behind, lived through the war, uh, lived through the years of uh, the Islamic Republic, the first uh, 10 years uh, under Khomeini, which were quite uh, brutal and uh, hard years. And then the years that uh, came uh, later on, I like to uh, think that there were three decades after uh, the, the revolution, after the 1979 revolution. The first decade during the war, and when Khomeini was alive, the second era when it was under Rafsanjani and sort of uh, the, the new leaders tried to change some of the uh, some of the policies that uh, they had initiated in the early years after the revolution, and the third decade uh, when uh, Khatami came to power, and it was known as the uh, reform years. Uh, and I think all along, life became easier, things changed. Um, but um, I didn't write the book to tell the stories that you already know. I, I wrote the book to talk about some of the stereotypes that the Islamic Republic wanted to project of Iran and of Iranians. And in 2009, when I left Iran and I started giving talks, I was very surprised that a lot of those stereotypes were ideas and notions that people believed about Iran. Uh, stereotypes that we had fought against uh, during our years in Iran. Uh, we had tried uh, not to be the walking symbols, uh, not to accept those stereotypes. But outside Iran, those ideas had become accepted uh, ideas. In 2005, uh, before the presidential election that led to uh, Ahmadinejad's election, I went to see um, a reformist uh, ed editor. Um, and I, I had gone to see him, see him to find out if the reformers uh, 
supporters of Khatami had a viable candidate in mind because Khatami had served his eight years as president and uh, the survival of the sort of reform movement and the promise to change the hardline system depended on if they had a good candidate. Um, I spoke to this uh, editor. Um, I got a sense that they didn't have a good candidate in, my, in mind, which turned out to be true, and that was why Ahmadinejad got elected. But after I finished my interview, I had learned to put away my notebook and my pen and just to linger for another cup of coffee, cup of, cup of tea in Tehran, they serve tea, not coffee. Uh, just uh, for a conversation because I'd learned that it was during those times when I was not taking notes that these people usually spoke their mind. I don't know what he said, but he referred to the Shah and Reza Shah, and I just dismissed them as dictators because I had gone to school under the Islamic Republic. This is what I was taught. This is what uh, everybody talked about uh, in public. And this was the government line that I was supposed to say in a public place. But I was shocked when he got angry and he snapped at me. And he said to me that I didn't know my history. Um, now, I mean, I had heard this from a lot of ordinary people. I had learned it from my parents. A lot of people who had been disillusioned with the revolution. Uh, and in fact, when I had just started my journalism job in the early 1990s, one of my assignments was to go to bookstores to find out what books were selling well. And uh, all the bookstores were telling me that books about the royal family were selling like crazy. They were the most popular books. Now, this didn't mean that people wanted uh, uh, the Shah's son to return or they wanted monarchy to, uh, to come back to Iran, but it was a sense of nostalgia for something that a lot of people had lost after the revolution. And, uh, but I was completely shocked to hear the same uh, language from this editor, because this editor had been uh, one of the staunch supporters of the revolution. He had been very close to Khomeini. And uh, in the early days of the revolution, he had been the head of a so-called comité uh, in, the, in those early days, when they had set up these militia forces uh, to go on the streets and round up people who were against Khomeini who opposed his Islamic Republic. And a lot of those people had landed in prison and a lot of them had been executed. So I was surprised to hear these words for, from someone who had made those sacrifices. He had also fought in the war with Iraq and was a member of the Revolutionary Guards in those days. Then he said something that made, made total sense to me. He said, we fought for political freedom, but what happened after the revolution, we also lost our personal freedoms. Now, this was something that, as an eight-year-old during uh, the 1979 revolution, made sense to me, too, because at that time when the revolution happened, everybody thought that all the changes would be uh, political. But for me, as a little girl, uh, a lot of things started changing about my life. I had to wear a headscarf and go to school. And what hurt me most of all was that uh, we lived in a housing complex where we had a swimming pool. And that pool was the center of life for us. Uh, we swam in the pool in the summertime, in the wintertime. Uh, we took our skis in the pool and uh, just slid down the slope. Uh, but suddenly, we were banned from that pool. And boys my age could swim there uh, while we had to wear a headscarf and a thick nylon coat and sit around the pool. So I, I had sensed that a loss of personal uh, freedom uh, from a very early age. And I could see how this guy, 
who had made sacrifices, he had lost his brother in the, in the <coughs> war, uh, he would feel completely disillusioned and uh, disappointed in the revolution. Now, the, the book is not just about how many of these hardliners, uh, many of these uh, people who were willing to do anything in the early days of the revolution, uh, how they have evolved, uh, but also about many notions about uh, Iranian people and also about Iranian women. Uh, in the past 35 years, the Islamic Republic has been extremely brutal, e extremely repressive. Uh, they have taken the country probably 100 years back uh, in many ways. Uh, the war uh, was completely devastating, and now the, the, the country's ambitions over having a nuclear program has also been very devastating for the economy. Some analysts have uh, compared the losses to the Iranian economy, uh, similar to what happened during the war, because uh, the sanctions have hurt uh, the Iranian economy uh, in ways that it has deprived its infrastructure from major development, the oil and gas industry from major development, and so it has suffered hugely. But some of the Islamic Republic policies have changed to inadvertent uh, changes in Iranian society in ways that wouldn't have been possible uh, without the revolution, and especially about women. Uh, when the Islamic re uh, regime came to power, uh, Khomeini knew that he could not rely on the middle class, on the upper class for support. Uh, he knew that if they had opposed the Shah, uh, they had not been Islamists, they had been socialists. They had belonged to one of the leftist groups, and uh, they were quite disillusioned with the Islamic uh, system that he created. So very quickly, he started marginalizing a lot of these people, rounding them up, and even eliminating them from the civil sector. Instead, they started relying on people from the villages, from the margins of society. And uh, they, they hired a lot of these people. Uh, to assume jobs that had previously belonged to people who were educated, they had the expertise, uh, but back, back in, at the time of the revolution, expertise didn't matter anymore. It was their ideological support that mattered more. And as the war broke out, Khomeini started relying on, on their wives to, to take a lot of these responsibilities in society. When I was growing up, when I went to elementary school, there were all these women who came to our schools and they called themselves morality teachers. Uh, they came to our schools to sort of uh, uh, invite us, accept uh, Khomeini's ideology, uh, to believe in, in those religious ideas that they wanted to uh, uh, tell the next generation believe in. And uh, they wore the same clothes that uh, supporters of Khomeini wore. They didn't wear the traditional chador that my grandmother had worn. These women wore a hood over their heads, long, uh, loose coats, and dark pants. And over all those layers, they wore the chador. Uh, the way my grandmother had worn the chador was in a very simple way. Some, sometimes slipped over he her head and fell over her shoulders and showed her hair. But the chador, the Islamic dress, had a totally different meaning after the revolution. And we had to wear those clothes, and we had to wear it exactly the same way that they wanted us to wear it. In other words, we had to become the walking symbols of the Islamic Republic, and we hated it. We didn't want to, uh, to accept the homogeneity that uh, the regime wanted to impose on us. 
so we didn't believe what these morality teachers were telling us. Uh, and one reason for it was because we didn't understand their language. We didn't like the way they spoke Persian. They didn't speak the beautiful Persian language that we had heard we should speak. These women uh, came from, from villages. They spoke Persian with an accent. And they kept on warning us about things that was clear. They had no idea what they were. For example, there was one of them who always uh, warned us about the dangers of Auckland. Now, in those days, we had to use Walkman to listen to music secretly at school. But this woman had no idea uh, what it was. Uh, and she kept on referring to it as Auckland. But the funny thing is that Auckland has a meaning in Persian. It means original packaging. So there was no way that we would listen to her. What happened was that in the 1990s, uh, when I was in the 1980s, when I was in high school, it was these women who started to change. When they had come to our school in the early days, they had brought down all the mirrors because they thought it was too vain for us to look at ourselves in the mirrors. In the 80s, they started wearing braces on their teeth, uh, uh, contact lenses instead of glasses to beautify themselves. Uh, and in the 1990s, when I started working as a journalist, uh, they became what we call them, Islamist feminists. <coughs> now, in those days, we couldn't call them Islamists in their face because they would go red and purple and say that uh, feminism was a Western notion. Uh, what they were doing was rooted in the Persian and Islamic culture. But by the late 1990s, they started calling themselves feminists as well. But they were right. What they were doing was really rooted in the indigenous culture. Uh, they, they began going to the homes of senior clerics in the city of Qom, which is like the Vatican of Shiite Islam in Iran, knocked on the clerics' door and started asking them to reinterpret the laws. Uh, after the revolution, the Islamists had replaced the secular legal system uh, of the Shah with, uh, with the Islamic law, with the Sharia. And so the civil code and the uh, penal code uh, were all based on Sharia, which said uh, uh, the life of a woman was worth uh, the value of a man's life. Her testimony in court was uh, worth half the testimony of a, of a man. That meant two women had to testify so that their testimony would be equal to the testimony of a man. And many, many other discriminations against women. Now, these women started going to these clerics and asked them, to change the laws. They said these laws were written for the time of Prophet Muhammad 1,400 years ago. Women were more educated. They were working. They were contributing to their household economies. So they had to enjoy uh, equal rights with their husbands. And the reason for that was that these women had started to suffer uh, the brutality of Islamic law with their own flesh and blood. Uh, a lot of these women had relied on their steady incomes as government employees. They had moved up in society. Uh, they had joined the middle class. Uh, some of them, their husbands were fighting in the war. If the husbands uh, died in the war, they realized that they couldn't keep their children according to Islamic law. Their children belonged to the paternal grandfather, so they were coming and taking their children away. If their husbands were coming back and they were in <coughs> unhappy marriages, they couldn't get divorced. But according to the law, a man could divorce his wife whenever he wished. And uh, the wives couldn't get the custody of their children. They had to leave the, their house without any rights. So they had suffered those, uh, those brutal laws in every possible way. And they, they really believed that those laws had to change. 
By 2000, more than half of university students have been women. Last year in 2014, according to numbers released by, by the regime, uh, at a lot of universities, more than 70% of the students were women. These numbers are very similar uh, to the numbers here in the United States, and they show that Iranian women have, uh, have become empowered uh, by education. Uh, a lot of them have joined uh, the middle class, uh, and uh, they have become a force of change because they are extremely angry at the way they are treated uh, at home and in society at home, partly because of a lot of uh, cultural uh, traditions that are quite uh, chauvinistic and because of the laws that discriminate against them. And in 2009, during the uprising, if you remember, there were lots of pictures that were taken of the protesters on the streets uh, where women were at the forefront. Uh, there were a lot of videos that showed men uh, were following women, women were leading the protests, or women were even throwing themselves between uh, young men who were being beaten up by uh, vigilante forces. Uh, they, they were willing to take uh, the beatings, uh, but uh, to, to stop somehow the violence. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of misconceptions about Iran. Uh, uh, when my book was coming out, uh, they, they showed me uh, the picture uh, that is now on the cover of the book. And uh, when I saw the book, I was very disappointed. And I told my publisher that I didn't like it because I didn't think that uh, the, the woman in the head-to-toe uh, cover either represented me or any of the women that I had written about. Uh, it, you know, some of, the, some of the writers, if they're lucky, they get three pictures and they can pick one of them. Uh, I was shown only this one and my publisher said, you know what, this is it. We've done all our research. This is the book that this is the picture that is going to sell the book. We've shown the picture to everyone and asked, if you want to buy a book about Iran, which photo are you going to choose? And everybody pointed to this one. Um, now, I've, I've been very happy with my publisher. I think they made a very smart choice. Uh, but me coming from my background and wanting to have probably a woman on the cover that showed tons of hair was very different than the conceptions that people here in the West, even a lot of Iranians, have of Iranian women. Um, we had to wear layers and layers of black in the early days of the revolution. Uh, if you visit Iran now, women are wearing anything except layers and layers uh, of black. They do wear the headscarf. That is still the law. But uh, I've always wondered how they keep the headscarf back here on the top of their hair, <laughs> and it doesn't slip down. Uh, so women have been fighting. They have been pushing back the, the boundaries. Uh, and, and they have definitely changed a lot of laws. When I was in Iran five years ago, uh, it was still a problem to, to have a concert, to have a music concert, uh, but it was becoming possible. The musicians could, could go and get permits and have private uh, concerts. But now there are tons of videos on, uh, on, on the web and there are bands performing on the street. Uh, this might not sound like a huge change, uh, but for Iranians, it is. I mean, it's been these step-by-step -step, uh, changes uh, that has allowed them to create a bigger uh, space for a lot of Iranians. In 2009, when I left Iran, a lot of people asked me what happened, that um, the, the green movement failed, that Iranians uh, had to withdraw from the streets and they were not able to overthrow the regime. Now, that was a uh, surprising question to me, 
because I never thought that in 2009 people had come out on the streets to overthrow the regime. Uh, I had been very surprised that they had continued protesting for six months. Uh, I, I didn't think Iranian people were in any kind of mindset to stay out on the streets, get killed, uh, sort of uh, be willing to initiate a kind of bloodshed to bring about change. And I had learned this lesson uh, years before, in 1999, when the first anti-regime protests broke out. Uh, back then, the students led the first anti-regime protests uh, all around the country uh, through their student uh, networks. Uh, they uh, mobilized people. Thousands and thousands of people came out for a week, and they protested. Uh, what happened was after a week, the government came out with an iron fist. Uh, they, they cracked down the protest, arrested all the student leaders and activists, uh, jailed them, and put an end to, to the demonstrations. A year after those events, I met a student leader uh, who had uh, been in prison, had been tortured, had been held in a, a solitary confinement, uh, but he'd come out and resumed uh, activism. I was meeting him with a, with a colleague who had uh, covered Iran for a long time, and uh, she had covered uh, the revolution, uh, and so knew Iran quite well. Uh, during our interview, she turned around and asked the student leader, if he was willing to die for freedom. Uh, the student leader looked quite surprised, and then he said, no, I'm, I'm fighting for freedom. Uh, I have no intention of dying, and uh, I want to live and have a better life. Uh, when we walked out, my colleague told me that she was very disappointed in the student movement, and she didn't think that this student movement would be able to bring about change because its leaders were not willing to, to die for freedom. Uh, she said that had been the, the, the reason in 1979 that the revolutionaries succeeded because so many of them were willing to become martyrs. And this had been true uh, during the American Revolution and the French Revolutions. I was quite intrigued by, by this analysis. So I started asking people. I started asking activists, uh, leaders, uh, journalists who were even uh, activists, uh, whether any of them were willing uh, to, to die for democracy. And not a single one of them ever told me that they were willing to die. So in 2009, when Nadora Sultan was killed, uh, the woman who died uh, uh, during the protests and a video of her death went viral, my editor called me and asked me if, uh, if I could write a story about uh, the protesters and their willingness to, to become martyr. Uh, and uh, Neda's uh, martyrdom. Uh, I was quite surprised, and I explained to her that, hey, listen, this generation of Iranians have nothing to do with martyrdom. It's nothing that they're seeking. This is just an idea. I've never come across anyone who's willing to become a martyr. This is all government propaganda. Uh, so I ended up writing a story about Neda, true story, who she was, just an ordinary young woman, frustrated, with the restrictions on her life, she'd become emotional, had come out on the streets. Uh, she had never been part of any political movement or organizations. And quite sad and uh, uh, bad luck, she was, she was shocked on the street. Uh, and she was named as a martyr. That was the interesting thing, that the political leaders started calling a woman a martyr for the first time. But this woman had not come out to sacrifice her life or had any desire to become uh, a part of that martyrdom cult, if it ever existed. 
Uh, as, so I knew in 2009 that Iranians were extremely frustrated, extremely angry at the Islamic Republic. Uh, nobody loves this regime. Nobody likes it. Even those who support it, they support it for other reasons. Uh, this is an extremely repressive uh, regime. Uh, but Iranians are not in a state uh, that they would come out and engage in any kind of activity, like the ones in Egypt or Tunisia, uh, that would lead to uh, any kind of institutional breakdown. And the reason for that is because uh, the majority of the population, 70% were born after the revolution. A lot of them, uh, they, they, they know about the bloodshed after the revolution, uh, about the war. And you ask people, people tell you that it was during the institutional breakdown of 1979, during the time of instability, that Khomeini managed to hijack the situation. Because everybody knows that Khomeini was not the only leader that toppled the Shah. There were so many other groups. Uh, and he didn't have the intellectual and the educated class behind him. So Iranians are scared that if there is uh, any kind of instability, Again, hardliners would hijack the situation, uh, and they wouldn't be able to move forward with, uh, with their agenda for democracy. And uh, the second reason for, for that is because Iranian demographic has changed profoundly in the past 35 years. Uh, the majority of people live in the cities now, over 70%. Uh, the middle class has grown dramatically partly because of uh, government policies. The fact that uh, the regime uh, increased uh, the size of the civil sector, uh, put a lot of people, especially from uh, rural areas, on steady incomes and, and they started moving uh, up the economic ladder. Uh, and a third, because of education levels, especially among women. I mean, we, you are faced with a population where women are increasingly more educated than, man, than men in the past 15 years since early 2000. And if you want to change a society, change its women. Uh, women raise the next generation. Uh, and they tend to uh, want to avoid violence uh, a lot more than uh, men. When uh, in 2009, I wanted to go to downtown Tehran to cover the protests, I had a hard time finding a driver who was willing to drive me uh, downtown where the protests were taking place. Uh, most of these drivers were coming from poor neighborhoods to work uh, in, in more affluent neighborhoods in northern Tehran. But they complained to me that they were afraid that if they drove to the areas where there were de demonstrations, they were afraid that a rock would get hurled at their car and their car would get dented. So if people are not willing to get their car dented, uh, you know that they're definitely not uh, willing to get themselves hurt in any way. So I don't think Iranians uh, would engage in any kind of activism that would lead to overthrowing the regime. Uh, they're definitely waiting for, for the system uh, to either crumble down from within, or, as you see, they have chosen uh, the path of going to the polls, uh, even if it is every four years, uh, to bring about very slow, very slow but gradual change. In 2013, when they went back to the polls to elect uh, Rouhani, um, they went with very little hope. In 2009, their votes had been stolen. So they were almost certain that the same thing is going to happen. Uh, and besides, Rouhani was not uh, such a moderate. He was not uh, uh, the liberal uh, uh, candidate 
that a lot of people wanted to see as their president. But they went to the polls uh, to send a message to the regime. Uh, Iranians have learned to send signals to the regime. And even though the regime does not respond to those signals, but it turned out that in 2013, uh, it does hear these uh, signals and it does understand them. And surprisingly, they allowed uh, Rouhani to get elected. And he's been moving forward uh, with one of his major uh, campaign promises to end the economic sanctions and seek rapprochement with the West uh, and put an end to the nuclear standoff. Now, I'm going to end with a note on the, uh, on the nuclear uh, talks. Um, I hope there, there is a, there's an agreement uh, because of Iranian civil society. Uh, I, I don't think that things are going to change in their fa favor if uh, there is a nuclear deal. But first of all, if there is an agreement, people's economic situation uh, will start to improve. Uh, it is not the government that is under economic pressure. It is ordinary Iranians that are suffering uh, the sanctions. Uh, the regime has access to oil revenue, to its oil. It's been smuggling it, selling it, has enough cash, has enough revenue to sustain itself. It's the ordinary Iranian that has been suffering. Um, and, and secondly, uh, it's a way to strengthen the moderates in Iran. Iran has been divided between the moderates and hardliners for, for many, many years. And every time that Iranians have had a chance, they have sided with the moderates. That's the only option that they have. If the moderates manage to reach an agreement with the West, they will get an upper hand in Iranian politics. And in the meantime, if they are the ones that the West is engaging with, uh, the West can demand more accountability from them, can demand from them to craft policies that are more responsive uh, to the international community. Uh, and this way, uh, Iranian waters will get uh, stronger in Iran and uh, move toward uh, policies that uh, would, in some ways, respond to Iranian people's uh, democratic needs. Thank you. The first thing that I'd like to see uh, is to get to see a lot of uh, prisoners released, a lot of uh, political prisoners uh, released. Um, actually, in the past five years, uh, a lot of positive change has, has taken place on a social level. When you talk to people, they say that they have a lot more freedom. I mean, just last year, for the very, very first time ever in the history of the Islamic Republic, Somebody stood up, Rouhani stood up, and stopped the, the militia forces that they've had different names uh, since the revolution. Now they call themselves Besiege. Sometimes they were called Komite, different names. 
he stopped them from uh, starting their campaign, their usual summer campaign to, to crack down against women's dress. That was the first time ever. Uh, so those kinds of uh, social changes have already happened. But on a political level, uh, the, the, the regime has been very oppressive. There are many, many um, young people, uh, a lot of them who just turned to journalism because they wanted to express their political ideas. Uh, a, a lot of Iranian journalists who work for local media, they are activists. They use uh, the media as a platform to, to write about their ideas. A lot of them are in prison. And I like to see a lot of these young people out, able to write. And um, I think that's one of the first things that, if we see, would be a sign that things are moving in a good direction. Uh, but unfortunately, I think uh, one of the first things that the hardliners are going to do, if there isn't a clear agreement, they're going to crack down on, on, on these people. They're going to keep them in prison longer because they're afraid that because they have lost on one front, they're going to lose on another front at home too. So they would try to flex their muscles at home and uh, um, show that they still um, can hold the leash on society. What is your uh, working relationship with Thomas Erdogan? <laughs> He's, He's my successor. He was a very good friend. But he's my successor now. Uh, I don't work with him. Oh, you, you don't work with New York Times? Uh, not anymore. I had Thomas's job. Uh, after I left, uh, Thomas took my job. In your opinion, why isn't he getting kicked out of Iran? Well, you know, I was in Iran for a long time. Um, and I think people were asking the same question about me, too. Why isn't she getting kicked out? There were others who were getting kicked out. I, I think the Islamic Republic tolerates people for a while. And then uh, the other reason, I think, is that uh, the, the government or the hardliners look at people as potential uh, hostages. I was an Iranian-Canadian. Uh, apparently, Iranian-Canadians, Iranian-Americans make good hostages. And Iran a Dutch doesn't make a good hostage, I think. Fortunately for him. <laughs> Um, I wasn't kicked out. Um, I, I left before. Were you were able to leave. You. Yeah. Did you think you might be put in jail? Uh, yeah. I, I was very um, concerned about my <coughs> safety. Uh, in 2009, they banned journalists from covering the protests, uh, but we kept on covering them. Uh, for me, they were the biggest stories of my life. Uh, I thought the demonstrations were even more important than the 1979 revolution because. First of all, they were the ones that I was seeing as a, as a grown-up, as an adult. Uh, so they were more important to me. They were closer to my heart. And then the numbers were huge. Millions of people were just pouring out on the streets spontaneously. And it was a very emotional time, so I kept covering them. I received uh, a phone call from a, a Basij uh, commander who told me that my picture had been even given to snipers to shoot at me if they saw me on the street. Um, I thought they were just intimidating me. But then one day I noticed that my house had come under surveillance. And uh, since that day, I, I never left my home. Um, I didn't leave my home um, until the night that uh, I had tickets to leave the country. I had planned a, a vacation uh, in Canada.
from months ago, and we were just very lucky to have those tickets. We went to the airport after midnight when the forces had left, and we haven't been back yet. Yes. Uh, I have a question which is somehow the question. So uh, the way I understood it, you, you cast uh, an image of gradual improvement of the political years that uh, the, the women's right actually have been uh, limited, like in uh, family control or, as you can say, in uh, multiple marriages for, for men, and uh, also limitations on university entrance for girls. So how these two uh, images are going to reconcile the, the factual image versus the, the, the story that well, you know, what I said was that Iranian society and Iranian women have changed. Uh, I never said that the laws have changed. The laws are, unfortunately, as backward as they can be. Very little, almost no change, no improvement has been made. Uh, I don't think the, the change that was even made to the laws is nearly what Iranian women want. There were some very tiny changes in early 2000. Uh, about custody laws and divorce rights, but no, the change, there has been no changes. I think that's uh, the, the problem, that Iranian society altogether is a lot more ahead of the Iranian legal and political system. So if there is change, this society has the capacity to accept it. Uh, but Iranian society did not have the capacity to accept the kind of changes that the Shah wanted to introduce before the revolution. Uh, before the revolution, uh, the Shah wanted to educate women, but the majority of the population lived in the, in the villages. They were very traditional, they were very religious. If you went to a religious family in, in, in a village and asked them to send their daughters uh, to the city to go to university, they wouldn't have allowed their daughters to go to university. What happened after the revolution was that Khomeini segregated everywhere. Society, the, the, uh, uh, government uh, buildings, uh, schools, uh, all, even the buses were segregated later on, public buses. So a lot of these people, first of all, felt that they were sending their daughters into a society that was completely segregated, into an Islamic society, and then Khomeini also made a direct call to them. He said that Islam needed their daughters. Islam needed their women to serve it, to serve the, the revolution. So they thought they were doing a service by sending their daughters and their wives to universities, to schools, and that's what led to a profound change. As these women came into society, uh, they moved up in society, they became educated. I, I think it's these women who are the force of change now. Uh, and a lot of them are the, the, the mothers of a lot of these uh, young activists that you see on the streets. Um, they have already raised a generation that they have very different aspirations uh, than the generation of people in, during the 1979 revolution. Yes? Uh, in your opinion, your thoughts, first of all, thank you for your talk. It's, it's been very informative. Uh, how, how do you see what the role Iranian-Americans, Iranian-Canadians, uh, Iranian diaspora can play to support the the moderate uh, people and moderate folks in, 
in Iran. Uh, there's a lot of talk shows, there's a lot of talk radio, but most of that seems to be just for self-grandizing. But what can ordinary people do here? Well, I think that's a very interesting question, and many people ask me, and there's uh, clearly uh, a very strong desire on the side of uh, Iranians, uh, Iranian diaspora to support Iranian people. Uh, and I think the most important thing is to support what they want. I mean, well, a lot of times I, I heard from Iranians inside the country, they said uh, that Iranians outside the country don't understand what, what we want. Uh, they think we are capable of creating a kind of change uh, that, is quite, that requires a lot of sacrifice. And they, they expect us to do that, to take uh, uh, those risks. Uh, and besides, that's not what they want to see. I mean, they want to see gradual change, a kind of change that is going to be steady and long-lasting. So I think it is important to understand what they want and, and support what they want. And I think that one of the most beautiful things that happened in 2009, all those uh, protests, that, uh, all those uh, uh, demonstrations that took place outside the country everywhere, uh, it, was a, it was a show of support for what Iranians want inside the country. And, Iranians were not making any kind of demand here. Uh, so I think it is important to understand what they want and how they want to bring about change. Even though a lot of us are quite frustrated here with the speed of change in Iran, a lot of people have been waiting. Uh, I remember uh, when I was banned from swimming in our pool, my, my parents promised me every year that this would be the last year that the clerics are in power, that they're gonna leave yeah. and we would be able to swim. <laughs> Here I am. I've never been able to swim in that pool. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, uh, the reality of life is that the Islamic Republic has been in power. Its foundations are quite solid. And it's not going to go anywhere. So we have to accept that reality and see how uh, change can be brought about. Yes? I got the impression during the demonstrations that were going on in 2009 that many of them thought that the U.S. was going to come and support them. And was there a lot of disappointment when that didn't happen? Because we supported what was going on in Egypt, and here we were leaving Iran high and dry for the Green Party. I think you're right. A lot of people were disappointed that there was not uh, more vocal support uh, for what Iranians were doing. And I know that the Obama administration was very hesitant uh, to support uh, the protests because the Iranian regime was already claiming that they were instigated by, by the West and uh, they didn't have any kind of uh, uh, sort of indigenous root or uh, reasons inside the country. Uh, but, you know, I, I think at that time that was sort of uh, one of the, was a reason uh, that people were very, very desperate uh, to be able to win that small battle. And when they uh, sort of failed, and what they wanted was just new elections. They felt they were cheated from the minimum right that they had been given to go to the polls and elect one of the, uh, one of the candidates that had already been approved by, by the regime. Uh, and when they felt that they had lost that battle, they felt that perhaps they had been betrayed by the United States. But I, I don't know how, I don't see how uh, the United States would have been able to help uh, them on that front. Yes. Uh, I think you you were concerned about and you mentioned about the political prisons in Iran right now, which the number are growing actually, and rightfully so. But I take you back to the time of the Shah. There were also political prisoners at that time. 
most of those political prisoners today are part of the power structure in Iran. As well as the others, like the Mujahideen and the communists and the Fadayan who were in prison and they were uh, released after the revolution. And then they, they, they behaved quite I mean, erratically. Many, many, many ways, if you look at the history of after the revolution, immediately the first two, one or two years, I was there. I, I was witnessing all that change and you know, what was going on. The, the thing is, I, I, in my opinion, rather than worry about the political prisoners or, for example, the people, the, the Greer Revolution, Musabi and Karubi, both of them are part, they were part of this po political and power structure of today, but somehow they, 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 they had conflicts with each other. So people should not be really talking about why Mustafi was not elected. It wouldn't make a damn difference if he was elected or not. The thing, of course, is about their votes, and they had the right to protest for that. My, my point is that it better have a positive engagement with Iran from the West, and gradually change this regime so the, 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 the middle class that you mentioned is growing. That's a good news. Will grow more, more educated classes, women, Take, participate in the society. That is what eventually will change Iran. Iran has had four revolutions during the last 100 years. None of them has bear any fruit. If you look at the history of Iran, the first revolution, the Mossadegh time, the Khomeini time, and all of that, I mean, the, none of them has, 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 has resulted in anything because this democracy that we are talking about is not what is part of and parcel of the Iranian society or the Middle East for that matter. So my thing is, what do you think about it? More positive engagement rather than uh, this kind of, uh, you know, they should do this, they should do that, they, they should change, change, they should democratize and stuff like that. Well, thank you so much for your uh, concern. I think that what you said is exactly what the Western negotiators think as well. So they are negotiating with Iran without raising the issue of human rights violation. And so from a, a diplomatic perspective, that is probably the way to move po forward. Uh, and you're right, you're absolutely right. But the question was, what do I like to see? And I used to see a lot of these people. I, I, they, a lot of them were my sources. They, they helped me uh, do the job that I did for, for many, many years. And uh, it's, it's very hard. Uh, to know that they have been in prison uh, under very, very tough conditions for years and years now, since 2009. Uh, Musavi and Karubi, you're absolutely r right. That's part of, of an internal uh, fight. However, I think they should be allowed to talk, and I am glad that uh, they haven't uh, suddenly disappeared. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that, that a lot of these people are still in prison and they, they haven't been executed the way and the regime dealt with its uh, 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 opposition many for many many years for for almost a decade. Whoever opposed the regime suddenly disappeared in in prison. So that is change, and I, I agree with you that positive engagement uh, is more important than uh, going after uh, political prisoners. Uh, really, I mean, I, I, I want them out as much as everybody does. I mean, but the thing is, we have seen this. This scenario played so many times. And the new guys that come out and that they came, they get the power, they're always worse than the previous ones. So yeah. this is the story about yes. that.
The shortcomings? Yeah. Well, I, I never look at any of the shortcomings. I think the, the social media, not only social media, what I call the connecting uh, media, uh, connecting tools that starts with uh, mobile phones, satellite TV, and the internet, whatever comes along with the internet. I think it has empowered Iranian society uh, in ways that wouldn't have been possible. And uh, the mobile phones and satellite TV came to Iran very early on. Uh, much earlier than any other country in the region, and also the internet. The internet came to Iran in the early 90s, and it was uh, the fastest growing uh, in Iran than any other region. And people started using them as a platform uh, for or to express political uh, opinion, and this was very important. I mean, when people discuss things, uh, they start brainstorming. Uh, it takes them away from from actions that are more violent. And uh, and then it allows them to discuss things that um, they cannot discuss uh, without those tools. For instance, if I think Iranians had internet uh, in 1979, they would have learned about Khomeini's agenda for ruling. They, somebody would have brought up the issue that he had written a book and had clearly stated his idea about how he wanted to rule Iran. Uh, I mean, look at Montazeri. Montazeri, when the internet uh, made it possible for him. He published his memoir, and it was then that for the first time somebody acknowledged Khomeini had killed some 4,000 prisoners. Uh, so I, I think it's been the most empowering tool, not for Iranians, but also for many other uh, countries in the region. Yes? Most uh, most news uh, indicates that there is about five to maybe 15 percent of the Iranian population are staunch supporter of the current regime. With your experience, and uh, what do you think about that number, and how, how do you also see which part of this sort of a uh, reformist group might have a better chance of changing for the better within that within no, that is a very interesting question, and uh, there are different answers to it. I don't know how you can uh, sort of um, draw a line uh, where you can, who is a regime supporter, and what it means. Uh, I think uh, when Khomeini was alive, that was a lot more easier because uh, w in, during the first decade uh, of the revolution, supporters of the revolution were ideological. Many of them came from very, very poor neighborhoods from poor areas, and they were willing to, to do anything for Khomeini. They saw him as their, as their spiritual leader. But that has not been the case with, uh, with uh, Khomeini. First of all, Khomeini was not, he never had the same kind of religious rank that Khomeini had, and he never focused on the class that Khomeini had. Uh, try to, to draw. I mean, Khomeini always talked about Mustaz Afin. He wanted to empower them. Mustaz Afin meaning the deprived, the poor. And he did. He did improve their lives. But when Khomeini came to power, he, he began relying on the Revolutionary Guards and the besieged. He started uh, uh, giving them more power. And instead of relying on the masses that Khomeini had relied on, 
he started relying on, on uh, the militia forces and, 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 the go and the revolutionary guards. So the, the, the support base has definitely changed. Uh, but what, what is uh, true is that as uh, people started moving up the economic ladder before the revolution and started losing faith in the establishment, the same thing has been happening among Khamenei's supporters now. I mean, I came across a lot of Basij members uh, in the 90s, in the early 2000s, uh, that they joined the Basij uh, uh, believing that Khamenei was their leader, that whatever he said, uh, they had to do. Uh, and they all changed. They all changed very quickly. I mean, I would say that it took them sh a shorter time to change than it had taken uh, people uh, in the early years to change. Uh, because, I mean, part of it might have been satellite TV and the internet. I mean, I knew one of them who surfed the, the web every day. I mean, he spends uh, more time reading uh, uh, news on, on, the, on the web uh, as much as I did. Uh, and this guy changed in, in 2000, and, uh, which, when was it, 2005. He was still a member of the Basij. His commander had told him to vote for Ahmadinejad, and he went and voted for Rafsanjani. So uh, the, the regime has been losing its supporters, uh, in not only those who are becoming disillusioned, uh, but more so among those who are moving up uh, in society and, and lose their faith. But the thing is that a lot of these people, especially senior Revolutionary Guards commanders, are quite dependent on the status quo. They don't want any change. Uh, they have great economic interests. They don't want to see any kind of change. So you can count us on them, even though they don't support uh, uh, the ideology, the, the system, they know how corrupt it is, but they don't want to see any change. So those people uh, would, uh, uh, would be very uh, defensive uh, if, if there are any uh, protests, demonstrations. A lot of those people come out and try to uh, avoid change. Yes? So uh, a central theme of your talk appears to me that it is that the Iranian society is further ahead. It has progressed far beyond the limitations that the government uh, imposes upon it, correct? Absolutely. And, and that sort of um, uh, distance that's being created between uh, the reins of power and where society is advanced to is somehow going to lead to change, change in a fundamental way. Um, so that's one hypothesis. The other one, I think somebody in their talks mentioned, and I think you concurred that there's enough dissent within the regime, there's, there's quarrels that are ongoing all the time. So my question for you is, given that so many other examples of uprisings, whether it was in Eastern Europe or elsewhere, that it was successful, if people, people had to pay a price, which one of these two scenarios do you believe ultimately will result in a change? And, and again, this is probably looking into the crystal ball. Will it happen in my lifetime? <laughs> well, it is definitely looking into a crystal ball. I, I don't think um, anyone had foreseen what happened in Tunisia and Egypt. A lot of people knew there was dissent, that people were unhappy. But whether people were able to overthrow Mubarak in a couple of weeks, I don't think anyone had seen that. 
Uh, I don't want to make any predictions uh, about Iran's situation, uh, but from what I have seen uh, from my interviews, from my close uh, observation, Iranian society uh, has moved away from any kind of action that entails um, any kind of instability. They are afraid of it. I mean, nobody wants to see bloodshed, nobody wants to see mass arrests anymore. People were intimidated, very intimidated, by what happened in 2009. Thousands of people were rounded up, and they were not just sitting in a cell in prison. Uh, those who were released were totally different people. They had been tortured, they had been raped. A lot of them don't even speak about what has happened to them. And, you know, I mean, they, they've become examples for people. Nobody wants to follow that path. Uh, and a lot of people would even tell you what happened in 2009 was a mistake. We were carried away, even though at that time they defended it. I personally think it was the most important historic event of our recent history, uh, that it happened because society had uh, uh, reached a point that it exploded, that dissent had reached a point that people uh, just spontaneously poured out on the streets. Um, I, I personally, the way I see this gradual change going, the way that people even within the regime are unhappy with the situation, is that this system is gradually crumbling within, uh, from within. I mean, you have Khamenei who, who was talking about animosity with the United States, uh, referring to uh, the, the United States as Doshman, as the enemy, until last year this time. And then suddenly uh, his, his tone became moderate. And this had been his tone since he took power in 1989. And he started restraining his supporters not to oppose the nuclear deal. You know, I think the Islamic Republic, more than anything else, more than being ideological, revolutionary, or anything, is a pragmatist. What matters for the Islamic Republic and Khamenei himself, and he has said this in his public speeches many, many times, is the survival of the Islamic Republic. Now, what does this survival mean? That's, that's a different question. I mean, uh, I personally think that the regime was founded on three major pillars in 1979. Animosity towards America, that's where the Death America slogan comes from. Animosity toward Israel because Khomeini wanted to become the Muslim of, uh, the leader of all Muslims. He thought he could galvanize them by uh, being uh, hostile toward Israel. And the women, women became representatives of the Islamic Republic, women's dress. The regime has clearly failed on, on imposing its uh, homogeny on women. If there is some kind of nuclear agreement, it's not uh, exactly rapprochement with the United States, but it's the first major rapprochement that Iran has had with the United States. Two of the pillars are gone, and I don't think a system can, can survive on one pillar. So a lot of its major uh, principles would disappear, but I mean, it would shed uh, uh, practically its, its facade, but what would happen within, that's the, that's the <coughs> question. Does that mean Islamic Republic will become democratic? I'm not so sure because it can become quite uh, actually authoritarian inside the country. But if it wants to survive, it has to reform itself. As a, an American voter, let's say, 
would that be a second best approach to that area? And say, you know, we shouldn't cause problems. Well, you know, I would, uh, I would put myself in uh, Khamenei's shoes, the supreme leader's shoes, and I don't think that's what he wants to see, even though he wants to see the American <coughs> presence in a different way, much different way. He definitely wants to see Iran as the regional player. He has exactly the same kind of ambitions for Iran that the Shah had. He wants Iran to be the superpower in the region. So but that's all the Middle East. I mean, as far as he can go. I mean, as, as far as Khamenei can. Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, etc. Well, that's Iran. No, no, no. That's not Iran. Iran wants to be the superpower in the region. Not. It doesn't want to expand its influence in those countries. Oh, but it wants. That's not. Yeah. No. Okay. But don't forget that the United States helped rid Iran of its all its major enemies in the region. I mean. Saddam was Iran's major enemy, and the United States toppled Saddam. The Taliban. Uh, Iran went almost into a war with the Taliban in 1999. Uh, the Taliban invaded Iran's consulate in Mazar Sharif, killed Iranian diplomats and uh, journalists who were there. Iran dispatched troops to the border. I mean, both these regimes are gone now, thanks to, to the United States. And uh, I mean, after the fall of Saddam, Iran expanded its uh, reach in the region. So the United States' uh, uh, presence in the region has not been so bad for Iran. Yes? Yes, I have looked at the library database to see that you have written previous books, and it came across the translation, I assume that was you, of Shirin and Nadine's book. I I translated that book before she won the Nobel Peace Prize. I thought back then that it was an amazing book because she had taken all uh, the Iranian laws, the civil, the penal code, marriage laws, all the laws in the country, and compared them <coughs> with the international conventions that Iran has signed. And so because Iran has signed those conventions, those laws should comply. Uh, with those obligations, and a lot of them did not. So in that book, he reveals the contradictions. And along with that, he also discusses the International Islamic Declaration of Human Rights, which the Islamic countries got together and wrote to counter the uh, uh, International Convention of Human Rights. Uh, so that's the book. Uh, it's just a comparison of all the uh, Islamic laws and uh, Iran's obligations. Uh, but going back to the Iranian society, uh, what do you think about the narratives and the communications on the streets of Tehran or Iran altogether today? And has it had an influence on the siege or government uh, police force or, uh, per se? Has had to marginalize these forces? Uh, what is the question? I didn't get it. The question it. is how much influence the dialogue in the society between the people has influenced the government forces to marginalize those government forces. In other words, when you walk on the street, people freely talk about Basij, they criticize it, they talk about Sepalaya Madaf, they, you know, freely, they shout across the street to one another. 
That's, does that mean that really the Sepal or the, port, the so-called forces are marginalized on the street? Or are they going away from the streets? Or people are no longer afraid of them? Well, you know, I, I think we've had that culture since the revolution. I, I never remember Iranians not criticizing the establishment or the forces linked to the establishment. I mean, I remember you got to a, into a cab during some of the most uh, repressive years. And people very openly criticized the regime, even in a line for bread, people expressed their anger. Um, so I think that has been sort of the accepted culture. Um, but whether this attitude has marginalized the Revolutionary Guards and the besieged, I am not sure. I don't think that's how they get their legitimacy, uh, and that's not where, they definitely know they are unpopular. They know, I mean, a lot of them have told me that uh, the way we are treated, when people find out that we are with a besiege, uh, people treat us as though we are people from Mars, as though we don't belong to the society. Uh, they feel quite offended and insulted by, by that treatment, but I mean, Iranians have every right to treat them that way too, because, uh, they, they treat them quite inhumanely. Yes? Can you say more about uh, the relationship between Syria and the government of Iran and what is all this that's happening with Syria? Um, well, um, Iran came out and supported Saddam. Iran used it, all its uh, uh, ability, uh, technical, military ability to make sure that Saddam uh, sorry, um, Assad uh, would not lose power. It led to a civil war. And I think what that led was uh, uh, it helped ISIS to recruit members even better. Uh, you know, Iran is fighting ISIS uh, on one front, but I think uh, the anger and the instability that Iran's uh, support for Assad created uh, indirectly helped ISIS uh, to, to recruit better. I mean, there were all these stories in the early days after the Syrian uprising that members of, of the Revolutionary Guards were driving on the streets of Damascus using the same technology that they used in 2009 to find activists who were using the internet, uploading uh, videos about the protests, and uh, they, they were taking them away. They were nabbing them, they were shoot, shooting them. Uh, so, I mean, uh, the Islamic Republic did everything that it could uh, to help Assad stay in power, and that has led uh, the biggest source of instability in the region. Partly because Assad was Iran's ally, and without Assad, Iran would lose one of its major arms in the Middle East. So, I'm waiting for, uh, I think, uh, our time is up. Thank you very much.